All right, good morning. Good to see everybody here at our main campus. Welcome to you guys that are joining us online. So a couple things real quick before we get started. So I want to talk to you about Easter week, uh, because for us, the week leading up to Easter Sunday is just as important as the celebration of Easter Sunday. And I've always said this, like, to really understand and to, to celebrate Easter Sunday, you have to kind of sit in the week that leads up to it, right? And so we have Journey to the Cross, which is going to be starting tomorrow. So anytime that the cafe is open, you can go to conference room D, and you can go through the journey, of the, uh, the journey to the cross, which essentially is just stations where you'll go and read, and uh, it'll highlight these were the times leading up to the cross, and you can sit in those moments talk about them, be able to journal about them. Again, just to get yourself in the presence that you need to be to get to the celebration of Easter Sunday. Then also, we have Good Friday coming up this Friday, 7 o'clock. And again, I've always said, if you want to experience Easter Sunday the way we're supposed to experience, then you also need to sit in Good Friday, right? What's conference room D? D? I have no idea. I think it goes A, B, C, D. So ask somebody that's important in the church. They'll tell you. Like, I really don't know. I think that's the way it goes. Somebody in here that knows anything? Under the stairs. See? Important people. Yeah, you just got to ask the important people around here. Thanks. Under the stairs. Yeah. Okay, so then Good Friday on uh, Friday. Hey, I didn't know. I'm sorry. <sighs> okay, so. Good Friday, 7 o'clock, here at Life Church, just one service. And again, um, we want you to come to be able to prepare yourself. Because this is the thing, is, is that you jump into Easter Sunday sometimes and you're like, oh, it's a celebration of the risen Christ. But you forget that there was a time where people didn't think there was going to be a risen Christ. Right? They're sitting in the moment of... They were in desperation. They were in a place where everything that they'd given their life to was over. And so now that it was over, they were processing now what life was going to be like without him. And then they came to the place where they, when the tomb was empty, it was a true celebration, right? And I think we skip over that, right? Like we're just like jump past that and we're like, oh, it's great Easter Sunday. Let's go hunt Easter eggs, right? So to get the whole essence of what Easter Sunday is, then we need to have an Easter week experience. So we hope that you'll come and be a part of Journey to the Cross, and then also come to Good Friday, and then obviously come and celebrate with us on Easter Sunday. So if you didn't get one of these cards, it highlights all of those things. So the Journey to the Cross, Good Friday, um, and then Easter Sunday. And so you can use these, obviously, to be reminded, you know, of the services that are coming and or to hand these out to somebody that maybe doesn't have a church home that you want to do, invite to church to be a part of uh, either either of those uh, opportunities, whether it's Journey of the Cross, Good Friday or Easter Sunday, because we are praying um, for people that have not yet known Jesus or for people that are in these places where maybe they're in between churches, they've been away from church for a while, you know, that they will be with us on Easter Sunday as we do celebrate together the resurrection. And so we're praying that you, one, um, are praying for those people and that you'll invite those people to come and be a part of uh, what we're doing together and that we can celebrate together the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. So that's Easter week leading up to Easter Sunday. So just two normal services on Sunday, um, but I'm assuming if you want a seat that's 
somewhere close, you know, you might want to come a little bit early because we're expecting, obviously, uh, big crowds, and so we'd love for you. We're going to have more seating, but obviously, it's going to be pushed back a little bit further, so if you want, like, your normal seat and being able to sit somewhere close to the front, I would say come a little bit uh, early to Easter Sunday, and I'd honestly say, based upon our Good Friday numbers from last year, you might want to come a little bit early for Good Friday also to be able to have a seat with that. All right, so turn to Revelations 5. So that's where we're at and what we're going to be studying today. So real quick, I'm going to give you emphasis uh, when we're reading Revelations, what I'm calling the second half of the book, what's really important for you to understand. So it was the first part of it was the here and now, everything else is future, right? So it's the things that are going to be happening. So two things when we're reading it that are really important. Don't get caught up in the symbolism, okay? Symbolism is important, but if you spend all of your time on the symbolism piece and miss the main point, then you're going to end up missing what God wants to do or what he was trying to do in this. Symbolism is important, and I will do my best to explain it when the symbolism means something and be able to give you the meaning behind it. But if we spent all of the time highlighting every single one of the symbols, that's all we'd end up doing, right? So on a Sunday morning, I'm going to highlight the idea of what the symbolism is, but what I'm trying to get for you guys is that don't miss the main point, because people usually do two things. They start reading Revelations, and they see all of the symbolism, horns, and, you know, horses, and seven-winged animals, and five faces on things, and eyes all over the body, and they're like, I can't read this, it's weird. And or they spend all of their time trying to figure out why does that guy have seven eyes or why does this one have seven horns or why does this one have eyes all over? And both of them aren't the right way to read it. You know, obviously there's, there's a reason for symbolism, but when you get caught up and try to just figure it out, you miss it. And we should be reading Revelation, obviously, because it has a lot of good information for us. So that's one thing. The other thing is why read or understand the future if it's never going to happen to you? Right? A lot of people have asked that question. Why well, understand the future if the future might not ever affect us? Well, the point is, is that if we understand what God's trying to do and why he wanted this written down, he wanted this written down and recorded because here's what he's expecting from each one of us. If you know the future, it should change your present. Right? So if you know what's coming, it should affect what you do today. And so the emphasis on Revelation is, is he's going to tell you about the future, but not just so that you can be like, wow, I know the future. It should honestly change what you do today when you walk out of here, right? When you read what we're going to read in Revelation 5 today, you need to know that there's stuff in here that should honestly change the direction of your life or solidify the direction of your life. One of the two things, right? Even though it's something that's going to happen in the future. All right. So I'm going to read Revelation 5 all the way through. And we're going to go uh, break it down and look at, again, what he's trying to teach us. So here's Revelations 5, starting in verse 1. So here's what it says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then, then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. 
See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all of the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you per purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and every people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So here's the picture that I want you to see. So last week it was, here's the throne room. So this is the majesty of the throne room. This is what's going on inside of the throne room. This is how we should worship inside of the throne room. We are still in heaven at this point. So when we're reading in Revelation 5, it's still a picture of we're in this heavenly throne room, but it's a little bit different. So yes, it's talking about worship, but now it's talking about preparation. Right, So they are now getting ready for what's next. And so when we read on or go on in Revelation, because that's what we're going to do. So it'll be, we do Revelations 5 this week, and then we'll do Easter Sunday, and then we're going to go back into Revelation 6, right? And keep going with that until we get uh, to the end of Revelation. So in that, it's you need to see this is what heaven looks like and what heaven's getting prepared for, right? So that's the picture that John's, uh, wants each one of us to see in the, the wholeness of what Revelation is. Now, to be able to understand Revelation 5, you have to understand some things in the backdrop that he would have thought or maybe assumed that we would get this and understand it. And you might, but I'm going to go ahead and explain it to you anyway. So here's some things that are really important. To, to get Revelation 5, you have to go clear back to the beginning and understand this. When God created the world and he created mankind, he created it in a way, right? He created it to be perfect, he created it to be never-ending, and he created it to go on forever and ever, right? So when he created the earth, that's what he created it for, and when he created mankind, he created it the same way. That when mankind was created, they were made and created to go on forever and ever and ever and all eternity, right? Never to die, never to be corrupted, never to be sick, never to have pain. And inside of that beautiful world that he created, with mankind being the pinnacle of his creation, he also says, and I'm going to be with them and worship with them forever and ever and be in relationship with, with them forever and ever and ever for all of eternity. That's the way it was supposed to be, okay? So that's Garden of Eden. That's how he designed it. But then sin entered the world, okay? And when sin entered the world, things are no longer as they should be. Okay? Sin is now, or the world is now under a curse, right? And part of the curse is this. The world's dying, and if you didn't know this when you woke up this morning, so are you. 
right? Like your body reminds you, right? The older that we get, your body reminds you that you're going downhill, right? Like every time that you, might not yet for some of you younger people, but over time, you're going to be reminded that the older you get, you're going to realize that your body's dying. And or I think, you know, and I've talked to young people like this. A lot of young people grow up and they never actually see anybody die, so they never really think about it. But once you experience death, there's this reality that comes to light that you're going to die too no matter what age you are. You know what I mean? Like if you go to a funeral with somebody you love, you're like, oh, crap. It doesn't matter how young I am. I'm still dying too. So there's this curse. The world is dying and so are you, but it was never intended to be that way. Okay? The world was never intended to, to die and neither were you. Okay? So that's the curse. The other part of the curse that we need to understand is, is this understanding of how a sovereign God, who we would say is in control, we believe that, right? But we also understand that scripture says, but Satan rules the world. How does a sovereign God who is in control also in the same sentence or in the same timeline say, but Satan is the ruler of the world? Because that's what happened when sin entered the world. Right, so I always try to explain, because this is really important to understand. It's really important to understand how a sovereign God who is in control can also allow Satan to rule the world. Okay, so I always explain to people, uh, to people like this. So it's just like if you ever walk up to somebody's house who has that dog, you know, and it's the dog that has the big log chain, you know, and you know if a dog that has a big long, big log chain around their neck, it's one of those dogs that if you get inside of that path, you know what I mean? Like there's the doghouse, and then there's the worn out grass path. Anybody have that dog? <laughs> or been by that dog? You know what I mean? It's like this idea that if you walk inside of there, it doesn't really matter if that dog's sleeping. If you get inside of there and that dog wakes up, you're getting mauled, right? That's the reason there's the big log chain, because that dog mauled somebody before, right? Because <laughs> it got outside of the chain, right? Like that's usually how it works. So I always tell people, this is how it is with a sovereign God and Satan ruling the world. Satan rules the world on a chain, okay? Like, this is the idea, is that he rules the world on a chain. And just like it is, you know, like, we, we tell our kids, this is how the principle of the Bible works, is the principle of the Bible gives us these um, things that we should do. Like, we tell our kids, like, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this. You know what I mean? Like, we tell them, because here's what we know, is that if you walk inside of that little path right there, you're getting mauled. And you know why? Because usually we got mauled once. Right. You know, that's why we tell kids not to go there. Like, they might not know that because you don't want to tell your kids how bad you were. I never had that problem. I'm like, I'm telling you, don't go in there. I've been there, right? Like, I've been inside of that circle before, and I know what happens inside of that circle. Well, the Bible's the same way. So the Bible's saying to a sovereign God who gives man free will, he says, you know what? Just don't walk inside of the circle. Okay? And if you walk inside of the circle, don't come crying back and wondering why you got mauled. Because what happens inside of the circle is man's free will and Satan's reign, and they mix together, and you have consequences inside of the circle. Does that make sense? Right? So that's how a sovereign God works with Satan who is in control but still on a leash. Right? Walk inside of there. These are the things happen outside of the chain or outside of the, the little grass loop, everybody get, like, I always think I'm imagining things like I can see it. I hope you can. <laughs> you know, I say these stories sometimes and I'm thinking everybody else sees what I see, but 
Either way, like if you can see this worn out grass path and you're out here where the grass hasn't been worn out, how does sovereign God with Satan on a chain work? Still outside of this, you still live in a broken world. Cancer still comes, heart attacks still happen, death still happens, things that aren't the way that they should be. Like here's, here's what you will realize, and I'm going to talk about this in depth later on. Outside of this circle, even where this grass is this way, outside of the reach of Satan, you still live in a world that's not fair. You live in a world that's broken. And it's broken from the time in the beginning. It's still broken to this day, and it's not getting fixed until Jesus Christ comes back. Right? And that's something that's really important to understand. When you're reading Revelations 5, if you don't get this, like this picture, it's going to be hard for you to translate Revelations 5 and why it makes any sense. Okay? So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. You have to understand when they're talking about scrolls what they really mean. Because I doubt that very many people in this room have a scroll at home. Anybody have scrolls that they're reading at home? Right, so you don't, like, we don't get it. Like, we don't understand what a scroll would be. We don't understand why it would be sealed or any of those things. So I'm going to give to you history of what a Jew would understand inside of this so that you can get the picture of what that scroll was. So scrolls were used not only for scripture, but they were used for title deeds, right? And so when they're talking about a scroll here, it would be like a title deed. As an example, Jews were told they could never lose their land. That was a promise from God, right? Jews will never be able to lose their land. So even if you lost your land, there was still a deed or a title that says you still have ownership to this property, right? Like, not right now, but you can get this ownership back, right? And so on that scroll would be written, like, this land with this corner, you know, goes to this place, and it would lay out what your land was, and it would be rolled up, and it would be sealed with a seal or multiple seals, and then on the outside of that seal would be written three things. You had to meet three requirements to be able to open the seal, okay? So if you wanted your property back, and or if somebody from your family wanted your property back, and or if somebody wanted that property, they had to meet three requirements before the seals be able to be broken. Are we tracking? Okay, so inside of it, the scroll is the, the deed to your property. Rolled up on the outside of it is requirements. On the outside of it, the three requirements were this. Were you related? It would say that on the outside. Are you related? Are you willing, right? Because not everybody's willing to take on somebody else's land. Because when you take on somebody else's land, it's responsibility. It's not just you got land, right? So are you willing to take on the responsibility of owning that land? And do you have the money? Are you able, right? Because that was the third requirement. You got to, I mean, you can be related, and you can be willing, but you ain't got any money, it ain't working, right? Like, you got to be able to not only open it because you can pay the price for it to be able to take care of it. So outside of that scroll were three requirements for you to be able to be able to, to, to open it up. Related, willing, and able. If you met those three requirements, you could open the seals, and when you open the seals, you now get the deed to that property. Okay? This is why this is so important, because what you're going to see that we're going to be talking about is they're going to be talking about a scroll, and inside of that scroll is there's something written on the inside and outside, obviously, but what you're going to see is seven seals. Okay? So the next part of Revelation is the breaking of the seals, right? and the breaking of the seals is taking back what was rightfully somebody's. Does that make sense? So we've got to break the seals to be able to get back 
the property. So you got to meet the requirements, and then when you break the seals, it is the process of taking back what was rightfully theirs, okay? So those two things, keep those two things in mind. The world's not the way it's supposed to be from the beginning. It's broken. Satan's ruling, right? And in this whole scroll idea, what the scroll would have been like so that when we read this, it can make sense, okay? So now, let's go on and read now in Revelations 5, and let's go back and break it down, understanding those two aspects in the backdrop. So here's what it says if you go back to Revelations 5, 1. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Okay, so here's this scroll. Okay, now we're putting it in the context of what we're talking about today. They're talking about a title deed, so is this, right? But they're not talking about a title deed to just one property, okay? Here's, the t here's what is on the inside of that title deed. It is the ownership or the ruling of the earth, okay? So in this scroll, scroll was on the inside of that scroll was who's going to rule the earth or who's going to rule the world, okay? So that was on the inside. On the outside of that was written the same thing. Somebody related, willing, and able, right, to be able to do it. And on there is going to be seven seals, and what you're going to see is, is to take ownership back of the earth, okay? This is what you're going to see, right? To take ownership back of the earth, these seven seals are going to have to be broken to be able to take it back. And that's important to understand because when you start reading about the seals being broken, you're going to be like, ugh. Like, that's rough. Anybody that's read on? Like, if you read the seven seals and you get ready to see what's getting ready to happen, you're sitting back there saying, dude, does that really have to happen? Well, if you understand the scroll to take ownership for, for Jesus Christ to take ownership, rule on this earth, you know what he has to do? Purge evil. The seven scrolls, the seven seals that are being broken is purging the earth of all evil because he can't reign on an earth with evil so every seal is a representation of not just judgment and purging of evil but also redemption does that make sense right when he opens the seal it is purging right like it is like he's going down to get rid of evil people and but the people around them have an opportunity to be able to do what repent Right? So it's not just saying, I'm going to purge this whole earth of evil. It's also saying, and you get a chance to be able to repent in the midst of all of these things. Right? So in that, the scroll, the seals, all of those together was to make us realize that, again, inside of the scroll was written the deed to the earth and the ruler of the earth. And we're going to see later that who was able to open that. Okay? So in verse, go down to verse 2. Then he says this. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open up the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Now, again, think about this. So we've got to remember, here's a scroll. We know on the outside of it says, is anybody related, willing, and able, right? So they look all the way. So now it's not just the throne room. This is a picture of all of heaven, Okay. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever pictured what heaven would be like, but I want you to think about this. Just think that you would get an opportunity to see heaven and see all of the archangels of heaven. 
I doubt that they look like SpongeBob SquarePants, <laughs> right? I mean, think about this. I'm imagining these pictures of angels that are pretty big, hefty men, right, with flaming swords that look like they could do whatever they want to do. Anybody? Right, like when I see that, I'm thinking like this heavenly beauty and angels all around and weird to me that you would look and say, seriously, nobody can open this? Like out of all of these angels, nobody can take over this? Or think about this. Think about all the incredible people of the Bible and all the things that they've done. Elijah, you know, David, like all of the great conquerors of the world, like all of them are now going to be in full view of John, right? He's looking at all these people. And he looks at all of them and he sees that none of those, no matter what their accomplishments were on this earth, could ever open up the scroll. And we already know why, right? They're not related, not willing, and not able, right? It wasn't be because they weren't great, incredible people. They weren't because they weren't powerful, majestic beings. It was because they didn't meet the three requirements and they were gonna be unable to open that. So now we have this picture of this, this scroll that everybody know now is, knows that it's a deed to the earth and it's gonna take a requirement to be able to open it. And so now we're at this place where nobody can open it. Now listen to the response that happened next. This is verse four. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. And this isn't when we see wept and wept, it's not like he was up there and he's just like shedding a tear. Like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. There's nobody in this room that's going to be able to open it. When he says he wept and he wept, it meant that he was sobbing profusely. Right? When he says he wept, it was like this overall, like overcoming grief. Why was he weeping? Here's what I want you to think about. For the first time, John got a picture of the world the way that God sees it, right? And here's what he saw. You know what he saw? Mothers standing at the side of their son and daughter's grave when they died way too early in life and asking the question why. He sees husbands and wives that have lost people on this earth, watching them die a, a death over and over and over again, watching their body be wasted away to the point where you watch them die in front of you, seeing these people, seeing these things happen, right? And watching their pain, right? He's seeing Fathers and mothers who've been praying for their children for a lot of years, right? They've been praying for their children for a lot of years, and now their children are on a wayward path, and they're struggling with whatever those things are, but they're far away from him, right? And they're knowing that if today was the last day, that they wouldn't be spending eternity in heaven. It's mothers, think about this. Like, this might be far from your mind, but this is really true. Mothers that are weeping over their daughters, who their father sold into sex slavery to make them a little money. Because like, this is what's happening in the world today, right? Fathers who will take daughters, sell them into brothels inside of red light districts in other countries around this world where those little girls, you know, and this could be 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old girls are put in a room 
handcuffed to a bed. This is reality. I've seen this. Handcuffed to a bed. And men come in all day long and have sex with them over and over and over and over again until they die. They unhandcuff them. They throw them outside and bring in another girl. It's mothers sitting at home weeping that their daughters were stole from them and taken from them. It's mothers and fathers in war-torn countries now that are fighting over things that don't matter, that now have orphans, right? We're sitting there looking at war-torn countries right now, kids that are a part of this a, a war that are now being orphaned that will never, ever have a father and mother, never. Kids that are going to be put in orphanages where people are going to be, yeah, but they're in an orphanage and they're being taken care of. Let me give you a picture of what an orphanage is like overseas. So when I went to Guatemala, we would go to the state orphanages, which were different than the orphanages that we were building through House of Hope. If you go to a state orphanage, this is how it works. We would walk up there and the kids were told that we were coming. And there was bars all the way around the state orphanage. And when you would go in there, you would walk up and they would just reach through the bars just to touch you right? They just want to reach out and they just want to, they want to feel your touch, right? And, and we're really excited because here's what we think. We're, we're going to go in there and we have all these toys, you know what I mean? We have all these toys that we're going to bring in. We're going to take them in and the kids are all going to play with them and they're going to be really excited about it. And so we go in there the first time to the state orphanage and we lay out all the toys and then we all sit around because we want to watch the kids play because that's what kids do, right? Kids see toys that don't have anything and they want to play, but you know what they chose? To sit on your lap and they wouldn't get off. Because all they wanted to do was touch you. Because you know what they knew? They had to go to bed tonight without somebody tucking them in, without somebody saying, I love you, without somebody saying prayers, without somebody coming and laying beside them to let them go to sleep at night when they are scared. They knew that when you left, there was gonna be nobody around. And they knew that when you were gone, it could be weeks before they could ever see a person again. That's the reality of the world that we live in. That's the brokenness of the world. And John, for the first time, is saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I can't anymore bear children that are going to be orphaned, girls that are going to be sexually abused. I can't watch anymore how these Young families keep burying their children because of sickness and death and tragedy. I can't watch anymore as addiction ravages the people in this world and they continue to die. I can't continually watch kids that are just reaching out for hope, being sexually abused. I can't do it anymore. Jesus, come back. Get it done. Get it over with. I can't take it anymore. And for the first time in his life, he's saying, like, this has to end. Like, this has to end. I can't take it anymore. Like, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And he finally saw and was decided to say, you know what? Now that I know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, Jesus, come back. And you couldn't wait any more time. And he's weeping. You know why he's weeping? Because he's worried that one more second will pass and one more tragedy will happen. And he's ready for him to come back right now. But in that throne room, there's nobody. There's nobody. You see, part of our problem is, like I'm guessing this today, I'm guessing that if I would have pulled you on the way in and said, hey, are you excited that Jesus is coming back or that Jesus might come back today? Wouldn't it be cool if Jesus came back in our service today? One, I think some of you would have left, right? Because you would have been like, 
I ain't going to that preacher, right? Any preacher that's going to be like, hey, are you excited for Jesus to come back? I don't know if I want to listen to him. But I would guess most of you before the message, because a lot of times you lie on the way out because you just heard a message that you should be excited about Jesus coming back, and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I really am. But let's be truthful. How many people are saying, I am so excited for Jesus. I wish you would come back right now, right? I just say very few people. You know why? Because you're in love with the world. You just want one more experience and one more thing. You just want to see one more thing happen. You just want to experience one more at the sake of all of these other things happening. Does that make sense? Like, I get it. I just want to see my kids grow up, or I just want to see, or I just want, I'm just telling you, once you've experienced tragedy in your life, let me just tell you something that it changes for you. Here's what it changes for you. You can't wait for Jesus to come back. I'm just telling you. When you've seen hurt, and when you've seen tragedy, when you've walked into brothels and see girls that have been ravaged for months by disgusting men to the point of death, you're saying, get it over with. Not one more second to go by that this could happen. Not more, one more second could go by. To let, and you're saying, come back. But you know what happens is, this is what we do. We live in a bubble. You don't want to know it, right? So if somebody talks about it, you're like, change the subject. Or if you're on Facebook, you don't want to really look at Voice of Martyrs. You'd rather look at vacation pictures, right? Like you skip the things that are going on in the world. You try to stay out of it, and you try to create this bubble that, that life is good and things are good. And I'm just telling you, it's not. It's not. And once you finally recognize that and understand what he was weeping over, I think it changes things for you. Because what it should change for each one of us, right? Like what we should start processing and we, what we should start thinking about. The only reason you should be upset about Jesus coming back today in this moment is because the person sitting beside you is not going with you. Not because you're going to miss a vacation or miss a time or miss a moment or miss a birthday or miss something. Like you shouldn't. You know what you should be worried about or the thing that you should be passionate about is if the person beside you isn't going. Or if the person that you're thinking about right now in your mind that you know and you love and that it's around you doesn't know Jesus Christ and that if he came back today, it's over. They don't get a chance. Right? That's what we should be passionate about. But too many times we're so passionate about this earth and the things on this earth that we miss the perspective of what he's trying to get us to see. He wants us to weep with him. He wants us to see what he sees. He wants us to have urgency. Jesus, come back. And until that time, my urgency is to try to figure out how to reach more people. But that's what he's trying to say for each one of us when he sees that weeping and he wants us to see those same things. Now, he goes on and he says this, then the one of the elders said to me, don't weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and, and its seven seals. Now this is the point where I'm sitting here thinking, like if there could be a big moment, like if you ever see, like you just got done watching the, the final four, you know, when they, they introduce the players, like all the lights go down and all the music plays and they introduce these Five guys, anybody watch the national championship? All of you kind of sitting out there like, okay. or maybe the WWE, right? Like they introduce anybody, right? You see what I'm saying though? Pick your thing, right? When they announce it and there's fireworks going on and music playing and the spotlights happening, everybody's weeping and then it's like, hey, 
don't weep. Here comes Jesus, right? And he is entering the room. And when he enters the room, everything changes. You know why? Remember the three requirements on the outside? You know why everybody's like, Jesus finally showed up. Is he related? Yes. Is he willing? How do we know he's willing? Because he crawled on a cross for you. He held on to a post till he was beaten beyond human recognition for you. He was spit on when he could call down a throne of angels to save him, but he stood there instead and got spit on. He got a throne, throne of uh, a crown of thorns smashed on his head. He was belittled. He he did all of those things. Why? Because he was willing for you. And is he able? How do we know if a person is able? They have the money, or did they pay the price? Did he pay the price? Did he purchase you by his blood? Yeah, I mean, everybody's celebrating because finally the requirements have been met. The true ruler is coming back. The injustices that are happening in the world are finally going to be made right because the true ruler of this world is finally coming back and he's going to set it right. And all of us should be like, amen, right? Like all of those things that are happening, he's finally going to come back and we get to go back to the way that it was supposed to be and we should all be like, yes, Right? That's how we should be worshiping in this moment, and that's what he's trying to get each one of them to understand. Then he goes on in verse 6, and he says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and elders. So just real quick, this idea, why does it say that he looked slain? Right? Why, why does it give you this picture of, here's Jesus. You know why he looked slain? It's because you could still see his scars. Right? When you're in heaven, you're going to see the scars that you gave him. The scars that were given because he took what we deserved. And so you're going to be able to see those things. And the other part of it was is he wanted you to understand it was a lamb who was slain because he had to be a lamb before he could ever be a lion. He had to die on your behalf and he had to be sacrificed on your behalf because the judgment that is coming he earned the right to judge the world because of what he did as a lamb, right? Like because of those things and because of the way that he did it, he earned the right to be able to see those things. And he wanted us to recognize that. Then he goes on and he says, and the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. Now, again, this is back to like the symbolism part. So any guys that are farming people or maybe you've been to the zoo, like how many lambs do you see with horns? None, right? Like this is abnormal. So why, again, did he give us this picture of a lamb with horns? Now, here's the reason. So if you're not a farmer or you haven't been out around this, let me give you a little precursor in case you decide to get in a field with an animal with horns, right, or in a pen. When you walk out there and you see these like cows walking around that don't have horns and you like, I don't to pet them, you know, they're fun and you walk up to them and maybe they'll lick you or you can feed them something. But when you walk in a pen and you see a bull with big horns, just give, I wanna give you a little picture of that. Those horns will hook you, right? 
That whole idea is, is like you should be looking at that bull differently than looking at that cow because that bull's doing some damage, right? That bull, if he gets close to you, is going to hook you. That bull isn't, doesn't care about you. That bull is going to do some damage. And so the picture that he's giving you is, yes, he's a lamb, right? Redemption. But he's also a lion that's getting ready to carry out judgment. And those were the horns heard to represent, that the judgment that's coming is not only is he a lamb, but also the judgment to be carried out is, is that he needs to be feared, and that's what the horns are supposed to be. And then he goes on in verse 7 and says this, and he went, uh, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying. So again, what did they do? This is something that we talked about before. When they saw him, they fell down and worshiped, and we're going to get into greater detail about that. But here's another symbolism thing. The bowls, that they talk about the golden bowls. So let me tell you what that represents. So back in the tabernacle, Back in the Old Testament, a priest would listen to your prayer and he would take those prayers and he would essentially put them inside these golden bowls. And these golden bowls were full of water and incense. And so when he went in there to pray, he was interceding on your behalf to God for unanswered prayers. Does that make sense? So these golden bowls were to represent unanswered prayers. And so the reason that he's telling you now these same golden bowls of what used to be unanswered prayers, guess what's going to happen? Those prayers are going to be answered, right? Those things that, you know what I mean? Like when you've prayed these prayers, because we've all prayed these prayers, like, I wish you would get healed, but you don't. That's that unanswered prayer. Like you can't make sense of it all. I wish that they wouldn't have died. I wish that they wouldn't have got. I wish that this wouldn't happen. And I you know what I mean? And like, because those things didn't get answered, they're in these bowls of unanswered prayers for all of us. We're living in this unjust world where we're saying, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? Well, get, get ready. Because when Jesus comes back, those bowls full of unanswered prayers will be answered. You will be healed. You will see him again someday. You will, all of those injustices that have been carried out against you will be justified. All the evil that's been carried out in the world will, those people will get their due. All of those things in those bowls will be answered at the end. Amen? Right, and that's what he wants us to be able to see inside of that. And the rightful ruler, and this is so important for us, the rightful ruler is finally going to reign. And you know, for me, I can't wait for that day. Like, I can't wait for the day where all of these things inside of this world that aren't right will be made right and that I can, we can finally be, the usurper Satan can be taken away and that God can reign on this earth and be in relationship with us. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. I'm going to read this last part of it and then I'm going to give you some things to think about. So it says in the last part, this is what they said. You were worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked up and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power 
and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard uh, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praised, honor, praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So again, the response, right? And this is what I want you to think about. The response to Jesus ending it all, right? The response to Jesus opening up the seals. Their natural response to Jesus coming back was to worship, right? They weren't scared. They weren't afraid. They weren't like, oh my gosh, don't come. They were like, come, right? Like, Jesus, come. Like, don't wait any longer, right? I'm going to do everything I can, but don't wait any longer. Like in the months while I'm still here, I'm going to keep trying to reach people, but don't wait. Come. And they worshiped and just said, you're worthy. And for me, I want to give you three truths that I've had to live by, and I've said this for a really long time, and it started a long time ago for me. A long time ago for me, I had to settle some things in my heart for me to be able to understand how to live anticipating the time that I will meet him or the time that he'll come back, right? I had to settle some things in my heart. This was the first one. Life's not fair. It's not fair. If you've lived long enough, you've realized life isn't fair. I've watched enough and seen enough in this world that I just know it's just not fair. Like you can, it's situation after situation, whether it's for me personally or whether it's watching other people go through these things, over and over again, I've, I've just wept like, God, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. This just isn't fair. And I'm gonna tell you something that I had to settle a long time ago. If you think life is fair, you will spend the rest of your life arguing with God. You just will. If you think that this, this earth, remember what we settled right in the beginning? It's not the way that it's supposed to be. It's just not. Like none of these things are the way that it's supposed to be. You need to settle that and you need to understand it's not fair and we live in a broken world and that the only time fairness ever happens is when you go home or he comes back. So you should yearn for both of them. Because it doesn't matter what situation you're in now, there's going to be another one and another one and another one, and it's not going to be fair. Justice only happens when we meet him, either at the end of our life or the time that he comes back, right? And we should yearn for those things. You know, the second thing that I had to, to understand, and I've said this multiple times, people are just weird, right? <laughs> Like, you had to settle this. Like, life isn't fair, and people are weird. And, and again, if you've lived long enough, you know this. People say some things that are pretty hurtful to you. People do some things that, that, are, that are pretty hurtful to you, right? We go down these roads, and I, I always tell people, like, I just expect it. People are weird. I expect people to say stupid things, right? Because people are weird. And I just say this because what I settled in my heart is this. As long as I understand that people are weird... I won't spend the rest of my life arguing with people, right? I don't have to argue. I just know you're stupid, right? <laughs> Is that too, that too far? <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, people are just weird sometimes. They just come from weird places, and they're just saying some things. Like, they don't know the situation, 
right? They don't know what's going on, and they think they just have to run your yapper, and they're just like, it's okay. I'm not going to argue with you. I've already settled that. But here's the other thing. This is what we all need to settle. Love's the bottom line. Life is unfair, and people are weird, and love's the bottom line. And this is what I've said for my life, and I settled this a long time ago. I'm going to spend the rest of my life loving and leading people to Jesus Christ because I can't fix what's broken. I don't get to open the seals. I don't get to open the scroll. I don't get to fix what's wrong in this world. I don't get to change any of those things. I just have to be excited for when I'm going home or when he's coming back. Until that time, I'm going to love and lead people to Jesus because it's the only thing that matters in the end. Right? I can't fix this broken world. I wish I could, honestly. My own hurts and the hurts of other people, I wish that I could fix them, but I can't. But I can do one thing. I can love and lead people to Jesus Christ, and I will spend the rest of my life doing that. And I'm going to plead to go home, and I'm pleading for him to come back because the greatest thing that could ever happen to us is one of those two things, and that we could be in eternity with him. We stand so I can pray for you? So, Heavenly Father, we just know and, 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 and understand that in the moments like John that we see the earth in the way it's supposed to be, Lord, we're going to celebrate. We want you. We want you to come back. We worship you, plead that the injustices of this world will be done. But until that time, until you take me home or until you come back, Lord, we will do everything in our power to worship you to love you, and to lead people to you because it's the only thing we can control. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.